Good morning. Hey, if you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you here to New Hope. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, if you would, take a moment, fill out that Connect card, and after the sermon time, after communion, we're going to have an offering time, and the trays will be passed. You can just drop that Connect card in there, and it'll get to us. We love the, the honor and privilege it is to pray for you and your families, uh, and that's one of the best ways to get us your uh, prayer request is through that Connect card. So, hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Mark chapter 1. We are in a sermon series walking through the Gospel of Mark. We're in week four of the series, and we're still in chapter one. So that's encouraging, right? Um, And we're going to talk a little bit about chapter two, but for the most part, we are going to stay in chapter one. And today I'm going to do things a little bit different than normal. Fred Craddock is a a well-known preaching professor, and he said, hey, uh, as as you're preaching, make sure that the tone of your preaching always matches the tone of the text. And so our text today is very narrative. It's a big chunk of text. And instead of walking verse by verse and teaching all the nuances of every single verse, which we'll do a little bit today, but I'm going to try something different, and we're going to understand the narrative of the text and pull some things from it that I think are timely for our church. And so uh, once in a while, it's important for a preacher to take a moment in what God has placed on their heart to communicate clearly to the church And I think uh, this passage has put some things that are pretty heavy on my heart to communicate with us here today. But before we do that, I do want to pray one more time uh, and ask God to speak very clearly to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for your presence with us this morning. God, we want to be serious this morning about hearing from you. We believe um, wholeheartedly that you can speak to us, that your word is living and active, that it is alive that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it can pierce through to us, it can change us. And so this morning, we want you to speak. And we humbly come before you with that request in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, years ago, there was a television show that was pretty popular. I don't advocate necessarily the station it was on, uh, but the show itself was quite fascinating. Maybe you'll remember this. Uh, MTV Cribs. We have anybody that remembers MTV Cribs? Three of us. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this show. Uh, The whole concept of the show, MTV Cribs, was that a camera crew would show up on the doorstep of somebody who's famous, somebody who's had some sort of an influence on culture, shaping things around them. They'd show up on the doorstep of this musician or this athlete or uh, movie star, and the film crew would be welcomed into their home. And so they would come in, and you'd get a glimpse of a day in the life of this famous person that you want to know more about, that we're kind of drawn to. And so you'd walk into the house, you'd see the living room or the other living room or the other living room in these ridiculously uh, overpriced homes that they lived in, and you'd go to like all these different areas of these giant mansions, you'd get to see the whole property, the tennis court, the basketball court, uh, the pool, the other pool, the third pool, and then you'd come back in and you'd uh, get to go up and see the bedroom and you'd walk in the bedroom and you'd go in the closet and you'd see the 19,000 pairs of shoes for these athletes and Uh, You'd come down, and each show, uh, after going into the garage and looking at the cars, they'd come into the kitchen, and each time, the show would kind of come to a conclusion, if you remember this, uh, getting a glimpse into the refrigerator, as though that revealed something special. Most of the time, it was empty because they don't actually live in these giant houses that they store all their stuff in, Uh, and so they'd open the fridge, and you'd get a glimpse into how they ate and stuff. Now, what I found fascinating about this show is if you paid close attention as they're walking through this house, listening to these people talk about their life and the way they live in these homes, you could pick up on some things. Primarily, you'd really begin to pick up on what drives them. You know, what they would say their purpose was. What it is that motivates them. I I think the show always revealed more about the person than the person thought it was going to reveal about themselves. 
And as you watched it, you just got to learn a little bit about these different characters, these different people. A glimpse into a day in their life told us a lot about them. And the text that we're going to look at today is very similar. It's written by a guy named Mark, and he approaches his biography of the life of Jesus in a way that he wants to give his audience, which was primarily a Roman audience, a glimpse into the life of Jesus. But the Romans did not want to read the Jewish scriptures. They had no interest in these things. And so Mark uh, very intentionally approaches his writing in a certain way. Let me give you a few things that you can carry with you through the rest of this series. One is Mark uses his Roman name. Now his actual name would have been John or John Mark, but in order to appeal to his audience, he uses his name Mark. We learn his name is John Mark later on in the book of Acts when he partners with Barnabas on a mission trip. In addition to that, he won't quote very much from the Old Testament. You'll notice uh, the Gospel of Matthew, it's just about every page, Matthew, when he's writing his biography of Jesus, he quotes from the Old Testament often. But Mark very rarely quotes from the Old Testament because of the Roman uh, displeasure with reading Old Testament scriptures. So in addition, instead of uh, drawing things out, Mark is very quick. One of his favorite words in the entire Gospel is the word immediately. So it's just boom, 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 boom. It's actually, instead of being chronologically just drawn out, you'll notice that even in the beginning of this Gospel with the, the account of John the Baptist or the birth account of Jesus, Mark uses roughly 20 verses to set the stage for his Gospel, where Matthew or Luke will use chapters, full chapters. And it's after those 20 verses that immediately he begins to serve. Boom, 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 which is fascinating. Why is it? that Mark wants to show that Jesus was a servant, a servant king. This is kind of the, the idea behind the graphic for our series. You've got the cross servant and then the crowned king. He's a servant king. And so why is it that Mark is so interested in just boom, 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 a series of events that really plays out like a movie? When you're done watching it, you get this idea of who Jesus was. And he writes like that for a specific reason. Um, uh, Leslie Flynn, uh, when he was in seminary, uh, old preacher, said that uh, his seminary professor asked a question that was pretty, uh, pretty incredible to him, and I find it pretty fascinating myself. He said, hey, does anybody know the occupations of the four gospel writers? And they began, everybody in the class, well, John, very clearly a fisherman when Jesus calls him, and Luke calls himself a doctor, and he's very detailed, and so you see that Luke's a doctor. Matthew, the Bible tells us, was a tax collector, but what about Mark? See, Mark never reveals what his occupation was. We actually don't know what Mark did. We don't know what he did for a living, except later on in the, in the book of Acts, Barnabas is going on a missionary journey, and he hires or brings Mark on, John Mark on, to go on this journey with him in the role of a servant. That was his job. And so he would have been brought on by Barnabas to go on this missionary journey and probably handled the finances and the logistics and the plans and the lodging, and all of these different things on this missionary journey to aid Barnabas in doing his missionary work. Later, Paul would ask for him to come and be with him after they reconciled after having a falling out. And so we pick up throughout the scriptures that he was a servant. Well, this really plays into the reading of Mark's gospel because he's going to show us that Jesus was constantly serving well, because that really appealed to his viewpoint, his, his vantage point on life in general and now specifically on the life of Jesus. Jesus was a doer. It was going to move, go, 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 on to the next. Now, when you piece together... All of the gospel accounts of Jesus were given uh, little uh, pieces from roughly 40 different days in the life of Jesus. Okay? Now, the, the gospels don't give us much about his early life. We read through the early life of Jesus, and we're not really told much about his childhood. We're given one instance where he was teaching in the temple, and his parents lost him, and 
all of that. And we're, we're told about the birth narrative of Jesus, but not much until he turns 30 and his public ministry begins. And then we're given, in that public three-and-a-half-year ministry, about 40 different days' worth of content. Action that takes place on 40 different days. And so it's pretty selective. And it, does, it doesn't really give us tons in each single day, except when you get to the passage that we're going to study today. This is where it gets kind of fascinating. This is one of the only instances in the Gospels where we get a full 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. It's as if Mark is saying, hey, come on, let me show you what a full day in the life of God was like. Let me show you a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus. And so it's an awkward 24-hour period. It's not like when he woke up to when he went to bed. It's like midday to midday. It's different timing, but we get a full day in the life of Jesus in this text today. And what I want to do for us today is say, what do we learn from getting an inside look into the day, a day in the life of Jesus? Because it's going to reveal a lot about us as well. So if you would, do me uh, the honor of standing while we read God's Word this morning. We're going to read from Mark chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And immediately there, were four, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out in a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve him. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick and various diseases and cast out many demons, and he, knew, and he would not permit these demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early the, ne the next morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go out on to, the, to the next towns that I may preach there also, because that is why I came out. You can be seated. Now, as is with the TV show that I referenced earlier, and also really when you get a glimpse into anybody's life for a full 24-hour period, one of the things that's going to really jump out to you is what their purpose in life is, what it is that motivates their life, or at the very least, what they are convinced their purpose in life is. Even if they don't have clear understanding of their purpose, their purpose is going to begin to drive them. It's going to begin to motivate them. Now, Jesus kind of hints at what his purpose is right there in verse 38, but he really provides some clarity to it if you flip over to chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Jesus gets cornered by a group of religious leaders, and they say to him, why is it, or they say to somebody else and he overhears them, their thoughts and their, talk, their conversations, because he's Jesus and he can do that, and, and they're saying, why is it that he would sit with these type of people? Having somebody sit at your table and eat a meal with them in those days was a very intimate thing. It was a sign of deep fellowship and connection, friendship. And they say, why would he allow sinners, people that are outcasts, that have lived their life doing the wrong type of things, 
and tax collectors, people who take advantage of people, people that are always out for their own greed and their own, uh, their own gain. Why would he allow those people to sit at his table? And Jesus, upon hearing this in verse 17 of chapter 2, really reveals to us what he says his purpose in life is. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I came, my purpose, the reason for me being here, is to call not the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus tells us right off the bat what it is his purpose is. And I'm willing to bet if I were to sit down and talk to you, you could probably put some words around what your purpose is. But I got to thinking about this this week, and this was very convicting and challenging to me, that when it comes to godliness, when it comes to godly purpose, what really matters deep down is our character. And here's what's so fascinating about this, is that your life will either prove or disprove your words every time. I mean, you can tell people what your purpose is. You can tell people what you're interested in. You can tell people what you want to do with your life. And that's one thing, but then how you live will always either prove that to be true or disprove it altogether. I had a very convicting experience with this recently. Well, I'm not quite sure when I used this illustration. I think it was a little over a month ago here uh, from the stage. For the second time in my ministry, I used an illustration that told you guys something that was really meaningful to me in my life. I also used it in a classroom setting here at the church recently. And the illustration had to do with my father-in-law's dad, so my grandfather-in-law. And when we lived with them, and I would wake up early in the morning, and I would find him seated at the kitchen table reading the Bible to his wife. And how that impacted me? Well, just so happens after talking about it the second time, my wife brought it up. Hey, (laughs) you say that that means a lot to you, but we've not been really great at doing devotions together in our marriage. You're like, wait a second, you're the preacher. I'm the preacher. We do devotions in our house every single night with our children. And I do my devotions and my wife does her devotions better than anyone I know, and we talk quite a bit about it. But in our marriage, we've not actually sat together in addition to doing all those other things and actually sat and read through Scripture together all the time. She kind of called me to the carpet. I did it again. I told him I wouldn't do that. There's something with the cord, and if I put my hand in my right pocket, so if I do that again, just call me out on it, okay? No, just stop putting your hand in your pocket, Rob. It's just a habit, okay? So my wife calls me out on this, and she says, hey, if you say this is important to you, you've got to back that up your life. And so since then, we wake up every morning and I read my wife the Bible and we pray. It takes 15 to 20 minutes. doesn't take a lot of time. Read her a chapter of scripture and we pray together. And she has told me it's changed everything. Boy, if I would have known that earlier. No, I'm kidding. But it was, (laughs) it's just been this deep, meaningful thing. Why? Because now my life is going to be lined up with my words. You see, your life will always prove or disprove your, your words, what you say. And so Jesus has just told us right here, my purpose has come, is that I've come for the sick. I've come for the broken. I've come for those who need somebody to heal them. And here's what's fascinating about it. He says, I want to come for the people that are spiritually sick, that are broken and messed up. And here's the irony in it. He's saying, essentially, I've come for all people. It's just that the sinners and the tax collectors actually know they're broken. So they're willing to sit at the table. The rest of us oftentimes refuse to acknowledge our brokenness. What Jesus is saying here is, I've come for everybody, if you're just willing to recognize your brokenness and your need. And so I want to pull some things from this text that I notice, that I pull from a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus that I think can really help us. 
first thing is this. Jesus was guided in every single detail of his life by his understanding of his own purpose in life. So he comes for the sick. He comes for the broken. And then immediately in this passage, we read that he's teaching in the synagogue as one who had authority. And what happens then is all the people are captivated by this. He has a captive audience. He's got a group of people that they are just hanging on every word that he's saying. They, they are completely dialed in on him. And in, in, in the midst of all of that approaches a man who's got this, he's possessed by a demon. And what we learn is after Jesus encounters this man, his fame spreads everywhere, but yet he tells the demon he doesn't want his fame to spread everywhere. Jesus, if he was looking out for himself, would not have encountered, would not have engaged with this demon-possessed man. Strategically, what would have helped Jesus more, you'll notice that here, later on, and early on in his ministry, he constantly told people, don't, don't tell people what I've done for you. And he would tell demons, you're not to speak of me. You're not to reveal who I am. And he does that for a reason. He doesn't want people thinking he's just some miracle worker. He doesn't want them to run with their false idea of the Messiah. He's got a strategic plan in place that will reveal in the right way what type of Messiah he's going to be, and the demon ruins it. And so all these people zeroed in on him and this demon coming and Jesus knowing that if he engages this demon, the word's going to spread as he casts the demon out and then his fame is going to spread. Why engage if it goes against what is really going to help you? It's because Jesus knew his ultimate purpose was people. Jesus knew in that moment, it's not about my personal comfort. It's not about my personal plans. It's not about my personal will. Right now, it's about this guy. And even though I have this giant big plan for the entire world, this guy right here in this moment, he matters too. You see, Jesus was always motivated by keeping his eyes on the goal, but could simultaneously be fully present in the moment with people that needed him. You see, the Apostle Paul would echo this, really calling all Christians to live this same way. He would write to the church in Philippi, and in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, he says these words. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But when it comes to my approach to life, here's what I do. And he says this, I forget what lies behind. I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on. That's, that, that language there is, I don't just casually walk. I don't take it uh, for granted. It's like I intentionally press forward with my life toward a goal. I know the destination. The destination that awaits for me in Christ Jesus. And what he's saying is this. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to let the destination influence the journey, not the journey influence the destination. And for many Christians... I'm afraid in our culture today, we've made church and following Jesus about how good we feel right now, about how it benefits us in the, in the moment, about clearing up our circumstances and helping us, and we're missing the big picture. There's always more. It, it, it's much deeper than we're allowing it to be in our culture today, in the church. And what Paul has told us to do, and what Jesus modeled for us in just one day of his life was that the purpose... You need to have clarity on the purpose. You need to understand what your ultimate purpose in life is and let that influence the everyday interactions, not letting your everyday interactions point you to some later on purpose. You allow the destination to influence the journey, not the journey to influence the destination. You see, we do this all the time. We, make th we miss out on the big picture of things. Later on in chapter 2, there's this really popular encounter that Jesus has. He's teaching in a home when these three friends have a paralyzed buddy of theirs. 
and they want to get this friend to Jesus, but the crowd's too big. And so they go up on the roof, they dig a hole in the roof, they lower their buddy, and he gets healed. And I've heard many people teach that passage, many people teach that passage, and they'll say that the whole point of that passage is the faith of these friends to do whatever it took to get their buddy to Jesus, and we have to do the same. Do whatever you can to get your friends to Jesus. And that's not a bad thing to say, but that's not the point of the passage. The point of that passage in Mark chapter 2, the whole point of that entire encounter is the authority of Jesus to forgive sins. That when everybody else was focused in on this circumstance, this right here, right now, this situation, get this guy here. Jesus was saying, this is much bigger than that. The spotlight of that entire story in Mark chapter 2 is on Jesus, not on the friends, not on the paralyzed guy, not on anything else except Jesus and his ability to forgive sins and set people's destination or their clarity and their purpose on what God wants for them. That's the point of that passage. And in a similar way, we need to make sure that we don't make the point of our lives our present circumstances, our present situation. So it could have to do with the family drama that you're dealing with, the marital tension that you're experiencing, the difficulty you have at work, how tired you are, your, your financial hardships, whatever it is that is going on. We've made Christianity in America about focusing on those things and using the gospel to help us get out of our tight spots. And unfortunately, we're missing the point. It's much deeper than that. And what Jesus models for us here is that it's not about our present circumstances, but future glory. It's about the destination, not the journey. It's about focusing on what our purpose in life is. And Scripture is clear that if you are a follower of Jesus, your purpose in life is to, when you get to the end of your life, when you get to that goal, it's that your life looks more like Jesus when you get there. The purpose of your life is to make your life look more like His. That's it. And to help other people do the same along the way. We say it around here by saying the phrase, we want to be disciples. We want to be a disciple of Jesus. So the purpose in life is to make sure that in all areas of my life, I'm allowing Jesus to disciple me so that I can then make disciples and help other people do the same thing. Point them to him. Paul talked about this all the time in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 7 and 17, look at your leaders, evaluate their lives, make sure they're following Jesus, and then go do what they do. Be a disciple who then makes disciples. That's the purpose of our life. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask, in, in a 24-hour period of your life, if I got a glimpse into 24 hours of your life, I would see what your purpose is. Would it reveal that your purpose is to know God and to make Him known? Is your stated purpose accurate, lined up with your life? Would your life prove or disprove what you say your purpose is? See, we see in the life of Jesus, his life proves it over and over and over again. He lived up to the purpose that he was given. I've read too many Christian leaders, their biographies, that contributed so much to the kingdom of God. They were all about the ministry, only to find out that they had neglected their family. They'd sacrificed their children on the altar of their ministry. Too many Christians who serve faithfully in the church and go home and do not take care of their families spiritually. Too many Christians who are occupied and preoccupied with making their platform bigger, their image look perfect, and they're missing out on the depth of a real connection with God. They're missing their purpose altogether. This brings me to the second observation that you can see in a 24-hour period in the life of Jesus is this, that Jesus was completely dependent on his connection with the Father in order to fulfill that purpose that he was given. 
Which means, yeah, he understood his purpose, but he could not accomplish it in his own power, by himself. He needed the connection to the Father. See, this is one of my favorite patterns that you can pick up in the life of Jesus. It's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Is right here in our passage, and it's verse 35. It says that Jesus woke up before everybody else. He woke up way early in the morning before anybody else, and he went off to a desolate place where nobody else was, and there he could pray. Now, I want you to think about this. This is a unique 24-hour period that we're given a glimpse into. So we get, to, we get to see Jesus halfway through one day, go to bed, wake up the next day, and go halfway through another day in this 24-hour period. And what I find fascinating is this, that, that the day before was not an easy day for Jesus to then wake up super early. No excuses. Last night, I came up here to the church probably around like 7. Uh, I was going to be here from like 7 to 8.30. I just like to come and pray and, and get ready and read over my notes for my sermon. Well, there was this youth... Uh, worship thing going on. It was really awesome. And I'm here, and I'm praying. I'm like, all right, I got to get home by 8.30. Because at 8.30, the Golden State Warriors were going to play the Los Angeles Lakers. And my son is a really big Golden State Warriors fan. So I knew if I got home, I could watch part of the game with him. So I get home only to find out that LeBron James isn't playing. Now, LeBron James plays for the Lakers. And with him out, it's like watching the Warriors play a JV girls team. It doesn't, it, like it, it completely lost the appeal of watching the game. Then I find out that LeBron James decided not to play in the most, probably the most important regular season game that they have because he woke up sore from playing 40 minutes the night before. Now, historically, I'm a LeBron fan, but I never read about Michael Jordan ever saying I'm too sore to play, right? Now, what would make perfect sense to me in reading this passage would be that Jesus woke up and realized how crazy the day before was, healing all these people, tons of people coming. I'm tired, I'm going to hit snooze. But he doesn't. See, Jesus wakes up and immediately, the first thought hits his mind is, if I'm going to get through this day, I need to be connected to the Father. Whatever is coming my way, if I want to stay focused on my purpose, if I want to stay focused on what's most important, I need to get alone with the Father, and I can't have these distractions. And so he gets up. No excuses, no whining. He knows that if I'm going to get through anything else in my life, I've got to have an intimate and real connection with the Father, and I can't fake it. I can't just say that I did, because my life will disprove those words. All you'd have to do is watch him a day in his life, and it would prove whether or not he actually spent time with God. And we think we can fake it. We think that we can tell all the people around us how serious we are about Jesus, how much time we like to spend with him, when really our lives will disprove that if it's not true. I love this. Um, a man named Samuel Brangle, he worked for the, the Salvation Army a long time ago, very well-known person, a really good orator. He said these, the, he was speaking at an event, and uh, they, were, they introduced him as the great Dr. Brangle, and he he got through the event, he went home, and just didn't sit right on his heart. And so he sat down with his journal, and he penned these words that were found later. He said, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him, and helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He does use me, but I am so concerned that he uses me, and that it's not of me that the work is done. The axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It can do nothing but for the woodsman. He made it, he sharpened it, and he used it. The moment he throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. A real dependency. I, I find dependency to be a fascinating word. It, it's this idea 
that it's not that I want to connect. It's this deep feeling that tells me that if I don't connect, I will be incomplete. That if I don't connect to that which I'm dependent upon, I may not make it. It's a desperation. It's a dependency upon the Father. Is you going through your day and saying, if I don't connect to Him, there's no way I can get through anything else that I'm doing. This is what biblical leadership really is. This is what it means to be the person God has called you to be. It's not titles or prestige or money or comfort. It's not any of those things, right? That's not what biblical leadership is. I heard one preacher say it this way. To to be the person God has called you to be, it's making your life a portrait of the desired destination. It's every day. I want my life to look like what it's supposed to look like when you're pointed to to the right destination. That's what it's all about. And biblical leadership, look, it's not your ability and your skills and your, your winsomeness and your gifts that are going to see you through. At the end of the day, what's going to prove you to be a godly person is your character every time. And your character will be proved or disproved by your actions, by the way that you live your life. And I think the time is coming when superficial, surface-level, self-help, make-me-feel-good Christianity, if you can even call it Christianity, is going to fade away, and all that we're going to have left is our character and connection to God our personal connection to God. The third thing that I notice in the life of Jesus, a 24-hour period of his life is this, that Jesus was always focused on connecting other people to that same purpose, always. I mean, he says right there, I came for others. The purpose I came, he would say later on in the Gospels, he would say, hey, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. The whole purpose of Jesus' life was to benefit other people. Notice in verse 37 how when they come and they find Jesus after he's been out praying by himself, they say, Jesus, everyone's looking for you. The time is now. you got to come and maximize this thing. All these people want to hear from you. You're the next great speaker, the next great engaging preacher. You need to build your brand and get this marketing machine going. we got to build this thing up. And what does Jesus say? He's like, that's not why I came. I didn't come to wow the crowds. I didn't come to have influence and impact came to heal the sick, to forgive the sinner, to reconnect people with their Heavenly Father. You see, just one day in the life of Jesus reveals to us that it was never about Him, it was always about other people. Always. This past week in our staff meeting, Ben, our worship minister, was leading our devotional time, and in that devotion, he had this wonderful analogy that just stuck with me. And he said, hey, he noticed when, when it comes to fruit that is produced on any kind of a crop, When that fruit is harvested, it's not harvested for the benefit of the crop. It's always harvested for the benefit of others. And he said, spiritually speaking, the Bible says that we're to produce spiritual fruit in our lives. And that spiritual fruit is not to make us better. This self-help approach to Christianity is just, man, it drives me nuts. That my gifts and my abilities are to to make my influence and my impact and my my outcome better and stronger, that I'm somehow supposed to be a more well-known person. And and we we look at producing things like that, and all the time, that's what what we focus on. No, to produce fruit in your life is always about other people. It's always about the benefit of others, not about the building up of oneself. And so we've got to be careful that what God produces in us when we see the clarity of the purpose that he's placed on our life because of our connection to him that it benefits the people around us and not us. 
Let me summarize it this way. Three things all together real quick. Our purpose will, whether, you like, whether it's the right purpose or the wrong purpose, your purpose in life, the understanding you have of what you're supposed to do with your life will influence every part of your life. Now, that being true, the clarity of that purpose is dependent upon the strength of the connection that you have to God. You have to God. More on that in a moment. And then when you get that clarity, what that clarity produces in you, the fruit that your life begins to produce is always for the benefit of other people. Always. So let me give you just a few things here to take away with you. This is, this is where I just feel like this is timely for not just our church, but just, just for Christianity right now. The first thing is just a question, and I'll, it sounds cliche, kind of feels elementary, but I want you to really wrestle with this question. Let me ask this question. What is, after I looked at the life of Jesus, here's the question that comes to my mind. What is your purpose in life? What is the purpose of your life? Parents, can I just be honest with you? Our kids should not leave our home without an answer to that question. For our kids to leave home and wonder about what the purpose of their life is, shame on us. For us to spend 15 and 20 years sitting in a seat, watching a stage, listening to the Bible be taught over and over and over again and wonder what my purpose in life is, we've missed it. If you're a follower of Jesus, your purpose is to become more like Him every day. My purpose in life is to become more like Him and to help everyone around me do the same thing. J.I. Packer said it best. He said, the purpose of life is to know God and to make Him known. To know God and to make Him known. Does your life reflect this purpose? What would one 24-hour period in your life tell us about your understanding of that purpose? Second thing is this. It's time that we get serious about connecting with God. You cannot flourish spiritually by feeding off of someone else's connection to God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot flourish spiritually by feeding off of someone else's connection to God. You must be dependent upon your own connection to God. We have to, and you will always make time for what you value. Always. One 24-hour period in your life would reveal to us what you value because it's what you will make time for. One 24-hour period in the life of Jesus showed us that he was not feasting on conversations with his friends about God. He was not feasting on reading commentaries and books that other people said about God. He was not feasting on podcasts and other people's sermons. He was feasting on getting to a desolate place by himself so God could do some heart surgery and he could connect to the Father. And the same thing is true for each and every one of us. And I'm scared in our culture that we're being led to feast off of other people connecting to God. And so I watch as we retweet and we repost Instagram posts and clips of sermons and other great Christian leaders who are wonderful communicators, but so many people are, are basing their entire spiritual connection to the Father on what someone else is doing with the Father. And they're missing out completely on the whole thing. I don't know, that breaks my heart. It's time to get serious. And so read the Bible. Some people might say, just memorize one verse and start small. I'm not going to say that. Read the Bible. Read as much of the Bible as you possibly can. I don't understand it. Keep reading it. It says of itself, it is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It will pierce through your doubts. It will pierce through your difficulties and your struggles. Just allow your life to get saturated with the Word of God so that you begin to develop a deep love and dependency on your connection to the Father. 
Last, pay attention to who God has placed in your life. Men, God has called you to lead your family. And your wife and your children are your primary ministry in this life. Not your place of work, not where you serve in the church. My primary ministry is not you. Well, it's Sarah, Caleb, Abby, Luke, and Noah. They are my primary ministry. And I will never sacrifice them on the altar of serving you. They come first. God has placed people in your life. And some of you might feel like it's too late. I've already missed out. It's never too late. That's the beauty of grace. For you to start to help your children, grown or young, see Jesus with more clarity. To help your spouse begin to look more and see Jesus with more clarity is what discipleship is. Moms, I know it's hard. I think you guys are superheroes. I, like, I don't know how else to describe it. It's not words strong enough to describe a mom who does well in the home and takes care of her children. I just can't understand how you guys get it all done. It's incredible to me. But your kids, don't view them as a chore. View them as disciples. And God has asked you to disciple them, to help them see him clearly. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your classmates, whatever age you're in, God has placed people in your life. So let me close by asking you this question. Will people say of you, after looking at one day in your life, what they could easily say of Jesus after looking at one day in his life, there's someone who knows God. There's somebody who sees their purpose clearly. There's somebody who is always fully aware of the needs of the people around them. Will they say of you, there's somebody who knows their purpose clearly, who is deeply connected to the Father and always sees the people that God has placed around them.